Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's a good movie. All right, are we ready? Hello and welcome to the Big Lead, Big Stream, Holiday Podtacular. My name is Stephen Douglas. I'm here with Kyle Coster. Today, we are here live via Talkboy to discuss Home Alone 2. Uh, we did Home Alone, the original last week. Home Alone 2, I was, I, I think it held up pretty well. I thought this is a very good sequel. Uh, Kyle, are you ready to go to Florida for Christmas? I would love to get away from my family. Uh, that's the real appeal here. I was ready to go with a scorching hot take that Home Alone 2 was better than Home Alone OG. I got about 10 minutes in and I was forced to realize that, no, that's certainly not the case. This is kind of a weird movie. Uh, it is good. I'm not saying that it's that it hasn't held up. I completely agree. But when you compare it to the first one, it does leave a little bit lacking. I think primarily because the plot is so ridiculous that they had to engineer a situation where this happened twice. But through that lens, they do an excellent job in terms of explaining how in the world this could possibly happen yet again. And then also kind of have a few laugh lines where the McAllisters are painted as these neglectful parents. So it knows what it is. And it's just fun. It's a money grab, a lot of new and exciting characters, which I think for the purposes of this discussion are going to make the list making more interesting because there's some big names and some surprising names that pop up throughout this one. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot There's a lot uh, to talk about right there. Uh, first of all, to quote another movie that had a sequel, it's like people only do things because they get paid. Um, yeah, there's a lot of product placement. Um, the talk boy, which we are recording on live from, uh, different cities. Um, my, one of my friends had a talk boy when I was a kid and that was the only time I've ever seen one. And it sounds like you had one. Did you have one when you were a child? Well, talk boy was definitely out of the price range for the Coster family, but we did acquire one as a relic, kind of a, uh, ironic purchase 10 years ago. Gave it to our oldest son. He carried that thing around for a while. It was actually functioning. It was great to like renegotiate a cassette tape, put it in there, and then for him to learn the hard lesson of what happens when that tape actually gets coiled around and how impossible it can be to fix. But yeah, you want to talk about what was the hottest toy ever. I mean, if you brought one of those to school in 1993, 1994, whenever this movie hit theaters you were a god among men yeah i mean the talk boy it like i i don't think i'd ever seen one or heard of one until i saw home alone 2 and then i'm like that thing is amazing and all it did all it was was just a, a funny looking uh tape recorder which is hilarious i those things should make a comeback somebody should create those for like a uh i mean it probably exists for like to hold your iphone or something and just have uh reporters at press conferences have some have, have peter Ducey at the white house uh, press car just holding up a talk boy asking a ridiculous question that would be amazing i think whoever is interviewing joe burrow needs to bring one that's just too on brand to not do yeah uh, you you also mentioned the McAllisters uh, being painted as bad parents. Yeah, this is another uh, rough film for the uh, elder McAllister family. Uh, so I we might as well just jump into it and uh, let that guide our conversation. I've again uh, put together a little list of my own rankings of the characters in the movie. Uh, so we'll get right into it right now. I'm going to say I, I don't even know. Let me let me count how many people I've got on my list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. All right, I, I think I've got a top nine here. So at number nine, I'm gonna go with Uncle Frank. 
uh uncle frank again is just like the worst person in the world uh he's hilarious he sings in the shower uh the cool jerk um he doesn't deliver the line about kevin never feeling like a man but he uh he is the origin of it and he gets to call his 10 year old nephew a uh, pervert uh so and then and then apparently they're going on uh their christmas vacation to the place where he took his wife on their honeymoon uh so all around tour de force for uh uncle frank Uncle Frank set a high standard in the first one, and he just went to a new level here. Um, I mean, genitalia joke uh, <laughs> right off the bat there. Seeing McAllister's react to being relayed that information was fantastic. He's shameless. He's shameless. The man has absolutely no shame. One of the first things he says is we've already packed the rubber sheets. So that <laughs> means that his child has been struggling with a chronic bedwetting issue for years and years and years. And instead of addressing the problem, he has just decided to like the guy from the flex seal commercial, just bring those rubber sheets everywhere he can and kind of uses like his kid pissing on another kid as as a threat. Watch list. I, let me just say like, this is mostly pre-internet, but if we had access to the type of websites that he was visiting on a daily basis, I think that even the most grizzled veteran, uh, Ben Collins over at NBC, who covers the disinformation beat, I think that he would be shocked and appalled at some of the corners Uncle Frank has found himself in. Yeah, I mean, Uncle Frank, he they they really play him for uh, some laughs at his own expense. Like he he all you for. You guys give the worst gosh darn uh, wake up calls. Uh, he falls asleep during the uh, during the school pageant, and then is uh, woken up in time for Kevin's solo, and then uh, and then laughs at Kevin, and then in in the uh, deliberation, he's just going. He's he, first. He's in a chair backwards. He's he's AC slatering it. Uh, I mean. Uncle Frank is just out of control at all at all moments in this movie. Uh, I wouldn't want to watch a full movie with him, but uh, gotta gotta love to hate Uncle Frank. And as long as we're here, we may as well talk about Fuller, who uh, I I did not list him this time, but he is again just I mean he's kind of uh, side by side with Uncle Frank the entire time, uh, delivering uh, some great looks. Uh, great reactions, especially when Kevin calls him a cheapskate, and he just looks absolutely horrified. Who do you got at eight? Uh, at number eight, uh, we have a new character. Uh, I'm going with Mr. Duncan, the owner of Duncan's Toy Chest. Um, it was around this time where he sold Duncan's Toy Chest and he bought the Chicago Cubs, I believe, and uh, brought in Henry Rowan Gardner. When we first meet him, he is working the counter at his uh, million-dollar toy enterprise uh, during the Christmas rush. So, you know, he's still getting his hands dirty. Uh, he gives Kevin the turtle doves. He kind of uh, acts like the the he and the uh, another character from the film, they act as kind of a stand-in for the uh, neighbor in the first movie. Um but just another uh, older soul that Kevin connects with. Going to go ahead and have to disagree with you on this one. Not a fan of Duncan. Uh, don't like the cut of his jib. He's like this doddering old man, struggles to get out words. I know he's meant to be kindly. The friendship he strikes up with Kevin is, is super weird to me. I know that Kevin is supposed to like relate, but in the first one, you have these really poignant, connection points between Kevin and old man Marley when at their church, this seems to be like, Hey, it's a benevolent rich guy. Uh, I don't like the way he says turtle doves, <laughs> every line, every line delivery he performs bothers me, rankles me in some way. I honestly, I kind of root for the now rebranded sticky bandits when they're going to knock over his toy store. Because I think that there's, I don't know. I just think you got to be too careful making a hero out of this guy. It didn't well, seem fun I, to hang out with. Uh, I just, I just don't think that, you know, comparing this guy 
with someone who is supposed to be the South Bend shovel murderer. <laughs> it just really rings hollow. And I know that we're probably going to get to another character that is meant to be a scary presence, but is not really. I just don't think that you need to. And I know that there's only necessitated to need a second location for the burglars to try to get into because they couldn't just try to break into the relative's house on the Upper West Side. So I think that the whole Duncan element of this movie is a, is a giant weak spot, and I don't think that we needed it. Well, I, I just want to point out that I have him second to last on the list, which is not high praise. So I'm not I'm not trying to uh, sell his virtues here. Uh and apparently I left uh, the pigeon lady off my list. So I'll put her right next to uh, right next to Mr. Duncan at uh, 8B. And we can talk right now about Kevin's uh, homeless bird lady friend. Um, one thing that's, uh, I mean, I'm sure it stuck out to me before, but when Kevin first meets her, his first uh, run in with a homeless person ever is just her turning around and him screaming in her face and running. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Kevin has obviously been uh, very sheltered by his parents in the uh, Chicago suburbs. And I'd also like to point out that I just noticed for the first time that their first meeting takes place in the same spot, the same location in Central Park, where they have the uh, the urban jungle photo shoot in The Devil Wears Prada, where Andy uh, finally understands fashion. All right, I'll give you a wholesome moment here and say when i lived in new york city i spent my time walking around uh spent a tremendous amount of afternoons in central park that was actually one of my favorite spots just beautiful you go through the underpass so that's something nice something negative here what is this lady's deal like (laughs) seems somewhat put together and it would be enough if she was just an unhoused person but they take the steps of like she lives in the rafters of Carnegie Hall, which seems profoundly dangerous. How in God's green earth does this woman ascend to that height every single time? Is Does she go up there because that's where a bird would live? Is that <laughs> what I'm meant to be understood? I think so. Uh, Carnegie Hall, I guess they might want to get an exterminator in there because they have a, quite a pigeon problem, I think, up there with the uh, old oboes and chairs. She's different. She seems uh, when she finally speaks, uh, she doesn't seem, you know, uh, off or to have any issues. Uh, Her only problem is that she uh, had her heart broken one time and now she refuses to uh, try and put herself out there and accept love, which in this case, love also may mean a uh, home loan. (laughs) Look, I don't want to be too harsh, but I think that a major impediment uh, to experiencing love again is approaching every person on first meeting covered in bird. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we can still say that in 2022, but again, I think that she's meant to be like a statue. Like she has a lot in common with the statue, like birds. Why? I mean, she feeds the birds. I, I liked her fashion. Um, I, I guess combined with Duncan, they equal one old man Marley, but uh, just, just some misses for me in the writer's room. Yeah, I mean, though, I mean, I guess the best thing is that it gives Kevin a chance to uh, show that he's grown ever since he's went to a, ever since he spent some time in a real city. I mean, you know, you hang out in Chicago, there's no room for growth. But you go to New York City for a couple of days, you learn to accept people, you make friends, and you learn you don't have to be afraid anymore. So, it, you know, it just would be so funny if like there was like a Jesse Waters or Tucker Carlson segment chronicling the crime in New York City and they used the bird lady as a graphic. I bet we could do that on Twitter somehow. Uh, so I will go right to number seven now. This is a continuation of this conversation, I think. Uh, the number seven character for me is the city of New York. Uh, the city oh, of no New York film city. school over here. New York City is a character in this movie. Uh, Kevin goes to the top of the Twin Towers. And this brings me to my hottest take of the the movie. Aaron Rodgers, easy. Is that I think movies like Home Alone 2 and other movies that showed so much disarray of people running through airports and how easy it is to just get on a plane 
I think this movie might have inspired 9-11. I mean, you see the problem with airport security. You just need to just say, oh, I'm, I'm on. Yeah, that's my dad. And they'll just let anybody go anywhere back then. It is pretty jarring. Um, instead of picking up the large pile of physical tickets, they just say, yeah. Like, okay, we'll board him, but make sure that he finds his family. And then the woman at the gate won't walk the extra 10 feet to make sure that that actually is his father. There um, weren't any brown jackets back, back then. Back security. Yeah, pretty young. The guy who was running the show there looked like he was about like 23. Actually kind of looked to be the same age as the pizza guy from the first one. No, the city of New York is great in this. And, and that shot where Kevin's going across the 59th Street Bridge um, with his head out the window, I think that that like for you cinema uh, enthusiasts out there like Steven, I think that that's really beautiful. When we first meet the wet bandits, they are down in Chinatown uh, at the fish market. Like they kind of hit a lot of different aspects of the city, not just the real touristy spots, the Plaza hotel famously right there on South central park, but the upper West side, 95th street used to live across the park from that. Like they just, they capture the city in a sense. And honestly, like kind of at a turning point where it was just coming out of like the crime ridden seventies and eighties movies and being like, okay, this is just when it started to be like a little bit more tourist friendly under Giuliani, but they also play off. Like you don't go into the park at night. And like the, the cop talks about what a horrible place it is. And this kid is probably being torn asunder by any number of rogue elements out there the shot of the city from the airport which i actually don't think is correct i that, so. that geography doesn't work out like laguardia is close but it's not that close it's so fun to be in new york city with kevin um exploring yeah. it like it new york city is kind of like a playground and, and a fantasy land so it makes a ton of sense for him to get out of the house a little bit because he was stuck home alone in that first one for a tremendous amount of time. He could only go to the local store. Now, you know, you go to a, bod a bodega on any corner. Yes. Uh, so New York, I mean, they did such a great job of just uh, getting all the shots of New York, just hitting all the, all the, all the big uh, landmarks. And it just looks real. And it looks really nice. I mean, except for when they're trying to scare you. Uh, the Christmas stuff is just to the gills. Uh, it looks beautiful. So that's why New York City finally, finally made a list. I'm happy for them. Uh, I think we're up to number six now. Uh, and I've got Kevin's dad. Again, he's kind of cool and collected. And uh, again, he's unprepared for their trip. Um, he forgot to charge the camcorder, which lead to led to them uh, him unplugging his clock. And that is the only uh, working alarm clock in the entire house of seven people. So, Mr. McAllister, uh, you better ask the mob boss for some more uh, clock money. <laughs> Unplugging the clock with such flagrant disregard, too. He just yanks the thing out of the wall. Like, I, I you know, he's got a power adapter on there. Like, just the carelessness that he shows. Uh, do we need to set it? Like, nobody else set an alarm? Like, I, I don't know what Uncle Frank, Uncle Frank probably is like on the Da Vinci plan where he's like, I just sleep 20 minutes every hour, something perverted and weird uh, in a zero gravity machine. I don't even want to get into it. I don't, I don't think he's sleeping with his wife. I want to put that out there on front street. I think that's a fair assumption. His coat though is a character in this movie because Kevin mistakes his father's coat for another coat worn by a guy, I think probably played like someone chasing Harrison Ford and the fugitive. I think he's actually one of like the U S marshals there with Sam Gerard. That yes. coat is so magnificent. It's so beautiful. Every time I watch this movie and it's a pivotal plot point, like it's just this beautiful Auburn color. Like I, I, I would pay $500 for that coat and would love to be the fanciest lad in all the land. Yes. Uh, and the people who wear that coat, have such disregard for uh the time that a flight leaves it's amazing like this guy's standing there at the uh the brookstone or whatever the magazine place is and then he's like oh i guess i have to get on my flight to new york so i better sprint across this crowded airport the week of uh christmas 
he he's standing there like at hudson news and then he has the epiphany oh yeah what was that at the airport for and then he takes off what i would only like consider like he's running at the pace like when a pitch invader runs on during the world cup and is trying to elude security he's high kneesing it it's outrageous now i appreciate the commitment to getting a chicago tribune or a chicago sun times to read on the plane but i actually think at that time they gave you complimentary copies, so I don't know what his deal was. I know this was probably about Kevin's dad. Uh, I do, as I mentioned before, he kind of steers into it when he's talking with the local authorities being like, actually, yeah, we've done this before. And he does the joke where we've never actually forgotten our luggage and they do the <laughs> wood bit. Um, great marriage, too. Like he and Kevin's mom, they are just in total lockstep. They don't allow the sideshow of having a kid lost for a second time in the murder capital of the United States alone to get in the way of their relationship. And I think that those are goals for the rest of us. All right. And with that in mind, I will go to six a who is Kevin's mom. Uh, again, she's just trying to get home or get to wherever her son is. So he's not alone on Christmas, but also she takes him away. She seems surprised and annoyed that he likes Christmas trees. Uh, this is a 10 year old boy who lives in a snowy Chicago, by the way. And she's like, I can't believe you like Christmas trees. Um, as, and both the parents, I'm, I'm just, I cannot get over them watching buzz torment Kevin on stage and then they make them stand up there and give their cases like, I mean, it's a great scene. It's a tremendous scene. But to see what's happening there and then just be like, well, are you going to apologize? Uh, Mrs. McAllister just, she got, she had a couple cases where she had to recreate the scream, the yell, the Kevin. And, you know, she delivered in that sense. Uh, she met him at the tree at Rockefeller for the, the beautiful moment. But, uh, just not a not a real strong showing for Mrs. McAllister, I don't think. Not like the first one. I mean, you're you're not getting that frantic, panicked, relying on the kindness of strangers things. I actually think that, you know, going back to your first point, this seems like a movie for funding the police. The police are a lot more helpful in this iteration. I do love the scream though, because you're like, are they going to do it again? The way she plays it, we're like, yeah, I'm going to do the thing almost <laughs> where she looks at the camera before going, come on. And question thing. though, question and though thing. about the third story at the McAllister house, which is kind of used as like a torture shed. Are we meant to believe that when the kids misbehave, it's just up, up there to the tower. Like there's some sort of, Rapunzel, and then we'll see you the next day if you survive the night. Can't imagine the heating. I, it was it finished? It didn't look entirely finished to me. The third story at the McAllister house. Now I understand there's probably like maybe it used to be a speakeasy. Maybe that's how he got involved in the mob. But that is a creepy place, and I'm not so sure that it was being best utilized as a motivational or punishment tool. Like you mentioned, seeing with her own eyes what happened at the Christmas spectacular, and then turning it into some sort of like a few good men moment for drama didn't make a tremendous amount of sense. She strikes me as someone who doesn't pay a lot of attention to things as might ring true when you've left your, left your kid uh, to die twice. Yes. Uh, I think that I would take a little more care to make sure all my children were with me at uh, most points of the trip. Um, leaving Kevin behind uh, was a big fail for the parents, I think. I mean, I, I know I'm getting back into hot take ter territory here, but I think leaving your child in the airport is a uh, bad thing. Um, the third floor of the McAllister house definitely has some uh, attic of Carnegie Hall uh, vibes to it. You just kind of throw things up there. And I mean, maybe there's another pigeon lady up there in the McAllister's home. We don't know. The thing about this being a sequel, they had to they had to find uh, different ways to like recreate all these things, and uh, yeah, her her Kevin's and that it was also like well the first uh, the first big introduction to this is a much more slapsticky movie, uh, more cartoon oh, yeah. violence, and the first case of that was the uh, the card the wooden tree falling on the lady playing the piano. Yeah, ac excellent. And the second was definitely her screaming, Kevin, and fainting immediately in the airport. 
Um, so <laughs> she came down like a sack of potatoes. Yes, she did. And they also did the same thing where they, we did it again. And they do that. Just, it's not even a, a really an editing trick. They just fast forward it for half a second to make it look like they're really panicked. I, it's, it's one of the strangest things in the entire, uh, two movies that they have, they fast forward the part where they get out of bed and scream. We are entering the second half of your list. We're talking top five. Who made it in this hallowed ground? Well, now we're back in a new territory, new character territory. And at number five, I've got Tim Curry. Uh, he's the concierge. He is immediately um, suspicious of Kevin, uh, almost to the point where I don't think he should be. Um, this can't be the first time a child has walked through the lobby of the Plaza Hotel. And yet he immediately sniffs him out. So he's obviously very good at his job. But then he gets a little too uh, nosy, even though he's right. Uh, I mean, partially right. Kevin was there with his father's credit card. And I mean, the McAllisters probably want Kevin to be safe in a hotel. But he sends Rob Schneider to uh, start snooping through his stuff. He shows up. Uh, to sneak into the room goes into the bathroom when there's apparently someone showering and singing at the top of their lungs um and you get two of the two great scenes of kevin uh being uh creative of using the uh using the clown to uh recreate the cool jerk and then uh the angels with fil even filthier souls uh when they all have to get down on their knees and tell them they love them uh just the entire hotel staff was tremendous. Uh, so I've got Tim Curry uh, first at number five there. Tim Curry, Hall of Fame face. Um, he was Pennywise in the TV movie of It. Obviously, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. He has just such an elastic and expressive face, and he does so much with it here. Um, he doesn't even mean well. Um, <laughs> he seems to be more concerned about a kid getting a free ride at the hotel than keeping him safe. I don't really understand what his motivations are. Maybe he's like so ingrained to like the who's who of New York society that he doesn't want to be shunned uh, on the society pages by saying that uh, I went to the Plaza hotel to have an affair uh, with, with an heiress. And uh, I happened to see a kid and my experience was ruined. His physical comedy is wonderful. It's only, I, he and he and Schneider play off each other so well. And that's so cool too, because they could not be more different actors. Um, maybe, maybe Schneider's best role. Uh, we'll get to that later. Yeah. I mean, we can get to it right now. Cause I have Rob Schneider at number four. Uh, he, I mean, this is like SNL era Schneider. Um, he's very funny in this, every interaction he has with Kevin as he's trying to get the tips uh returning kevin's uh his drawers to him who, which have been pressed he's a bellhop bellhop uh i think he, he has an cedric i believe his name is uh cedric the bellhop great and, bellhop name yes uh but yeah schneider uh, is hilarious whenever he's on screen in this film so that's why i have him right here ahead of curry one thing i noticed about his performance and i don't know why this stuck out to me this time is he's very david spadey in what he does like i could see david spade have played this role um maybe the second best bellhop performance of the 90s behind only dunston checks in with uh jason alexander another hit of the era when he does when kevin gives him the gum when he does the little like smarmy hand thing for the tip and kevin's not picking up on it i mean that's that's laugh out loud. To me, that might be the best moment of the whole movie. Like chewed up gum uh, is just beautiful with those white gloves. Uh, and I got to say, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that his appearance in this film and that chance meeting with Donald Trump, who makes a cameo, really changed the course of his entire career um, and probably not for the better. Yeah. And Dana Ivey as Hester Stone, uh, which I didn't know her name. She is the desk clerk, the female desk clerk. Uh, she's also good in this and she gets to be the uh, I believe she's the one that stands in front of the elevator uh, ready to intercept Kevin as Kevin runs and like he Pete roses it into the elevator. <laughs> he sure does. 
and that's another great uh bit of physical comedy where she then proceeds to take out schneider and uh tim curry oh yeah that stance i mean if you're gonna get like a prim and proper lady uh anytime they're gonna get down dirty and you see this, this is a classic 90s trope too like richie rich when like the butlers and the servants are playing and they're super uptight, but then they're meant to do something physical or in the sports realm, always delightful. Like we really knew how to do comedy back in the day. Like I have to say like the slapstickness of this movie has aged beautifully because we'll get to maybe some of the hijinks later on where they're a bit too aggressive, but the stakes in this seem super low and just rather delightful. Yes, the stakes are super low, which makes it seem all the more important. All right, what what number do you have me on? Number four or number three? Four was Schneider. Four was Schneider. All right, all right, I've got this. All right, so let's let's move on to number the top three here. Uh, if you're counting on your fingers, uh, remembering all the great characters in this, you're probably thinking, how is that possible? Well. I've I've done it again. I've put two people in the same spot, but we're not there yet. At number three, making the list after being omitted and overlooked last time, uh, regrettably, uh, is a powerhouse performance in just a few minutes of screen time from Buzz. Uh, Buzz was incredible in this movie. First at the talent at the uh, at the Christmas pageant, uh, messing with Kevin. And then as I sent you the screen grab, uh, Kevin turns and when he's turning, he's throwing a punch. And then when they go to the wide shot, Kevin pushes Buzz. Um, And Buzz just does an all-time NBA flop. Uh, James Harden would be just in awe. Uh, Buzz goes down. He takes out the entire choir with him. And then they get home and his performance only gets more incredible as he does the ladies and gentlemen of the jury. His entire family eats it up, and then he calls te- Kevin a trout sniffer. What? What's a trout sniffer? Uh, is that? Does that? I don't even think that that's sexual. I, I was curious and interesting because the first time what we see the wet bandits, they're actually sniffing trout. I mean, this is a beautiful picture full of deep nuance and rich layering. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I'll just, I'll just go. Um, yeah, Buzz's performance, you know that this kid sucks, right? Like he spends his every waking hour torturing his younger brother. He has the body type. I don't want to stereotype here, but he's a bully. This is your classic bully body, uh, played football, but was terrible at it. Soft as Charmin. I I can just see, I know the scouting report and the top of my head and his efforts to be devious are so transparent yet unnoticed by his parents that he knows that he can run roughshod over everybody. Like, could he have been more obvious that he was being disingenuous with like the aside, he covers his mouth like that, like not a convincing performance whatsoever, which brings me to a theory that I I feel pretty strong in, but I just, I find so shocking is I think that buzz is his parents' favorite though he most definitely should not be. It makes no sense. Uh, you don't really get a clear picture of the McAllister clan, uh, who is really who, because um, they're all together at all times, the uh, two factions of the family. Um, and, well, well, the rich, well, the really rich uh, brother is off and has nothing to do with these people at any time. And can you blame him? Uh, Buzz is just, yeah, he he gets away with anything, everything. Um, like he, I mean, he he is up there on stage messing with Kevin during his big moment, to the point where the audience sees it. His parents are looking right at him, and they have no problem with it. They don't. They're just like, well, I mean, I guess it's the thing where the person who retaliates gets caught, uh, because the McAllister parents are so in the clouds for buzz that they can't even see that uh, he was messing with Kevin. So yeah, this, uh, this is exhibit one exhibit a of why the McAllisters are bad parents. Uh, They're just completely unfair to Calvin or Calvin. Calvin's my son to Kevin. They're completely unfair to Kevin uh, at the expense of 
letting Buzz do whatever he wants. And then after the reconciliation, after they're all together at the fabulous and glorious where the who's who stay at the Plaza Hotel, he needs to tattle on Kevin for ringing up a large room service bill. Are, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Your younger brother has stared death in the face <laughs> twice and you're worried about like $900, which we know is no issue to that family because they're gallivanting all around the GD globe trying to collect their lost luggage that happens to have a human heartbeat in the same DNA that they do. Like I cannot stand this guy. And yet, and yet he is the <laughs> apple of their eye. It's almost like an arrested development, you know, where <laughs> George Michael loves Anne and everybody just sees Anne and it's like her. I, I when I see Buzz, it's just like him. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. And and it does the uh, the rules rules of three the rule of three where Kevin first gives uh, Rob Schneider the piece of gum, a, a fresh stick of gum. And the second time he Rob Schneider says, Oh no, I've got enough tip, I've got tip left over. And Kevin flashes the the twenties or fifties or whatever. And Rob Schneider's like, No, no, no. And then the the third time when Rob Schneider comes with the bill and he's looking for a tip from Buzz, and Buzz is the one who gives him the chewed gum, which is just Buzz at his worst. Yeah, it's the fact that Kevin only rang up nine hundred dollars in the uh, between the mini bar and the uh, VHS rentals is actually kind of impressive. Uh, well, I mean, and he also took a limo with a cheese pizza to the toy shop. So nine hundred bucks in in Manhattan—that's that's a hell of a bargain. I think he did pretty well for himself for a weekend in New York City at Christmas time. Uh, Kevin McAllister. Frugal King, my column. <laughs> so let's jump right into the top two. That's right. I've put Harry and Marv at two together. I'm not going to make us ch- make us choose a favorite Sticky Bandit. Uh, when they're the Wet Bandits, you can you can rank them. But the Sticky Bandits are one in they're one in the same. They are one beating heart. They are the ultimate duo. They're back. They're angry. Uh, they've changed up their mo a little bit. Uh, much to uh Harry's chagrin. Um they're just they're very violent. They want to murder Kevin now. It's surprising that they uh don't immediately just strangle him in the alleyway. Um yeah they they break out of prison. I like how at the beginning of the movie they have the uh the the newspaper fly and hit the, the front door. Um apparently the wet bandits made a big enough splash their front page news when they uh, break out during the prison riot. You know, I think that time inside can really change a man. Uh, If you see the night of uh, you understand, you know, I mean, the same thing kind of happened to Brooks. He was unable to acclimate to society when he got out in Shawshank. Yeah, I don't. Okay. (laughs) Here's the thing. Okay. Harry has had it with his partner and his heart's not in it. Like this plan stinks. He's got a real dunce for a partner. He's angry. He's small, like knocking off a toy store. Here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. If you're the wet bandits, if you're looking to rebrand, okay. Steal some money from like the corporate world. Okay. Blue collar, do a little, do a little Madoff scheme. Um, apply yourself, <laughs> you know, just you come on. You need to show some level of growth. I feel like they had a better plan in the first one than they did here. Like it's, the heart of Manhattan. There are cameras everywhere. What are you doing? And then you're taking a detour to settle this score with a a child up there on West 95th street, getting involved in construction. Like, I mean, what, what is the thought process here? Like it just shows that when you're hell bent on revenge, you're not thinking clearly. I will say, the reason why I think that they deserve to be up here at top of the list is like the energizer bunny. They take a lick in and keep on kicking. They each sustain, which I conservatively estimate to be five or six fatal blows, things that would have killed most people who have 
the consistency and dimensions of a normal human skull <laughs> and they just get right back up at it and they are undeterred. So they are tough as hell. Um, you know, like maybe this all could have been solved if they had stuck around a little bit longer and formed their own jackass troop. Yeah. Uh, the violence in home alone two is just ratcheted up. It is, it is no longer based in reality. Uh, most of the stuff in home alone. I mean, you could, you could imagine pulling off, but the stuff in Home Alone 2 is just straight up cartoon violence. This is Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Uh, Kevin just destroys these people for like 30 consecutive minutes. I mean, it, yeah. At one point, Marv is electrocuted so badly that he turns into a skeleton, um, which... They they get taken out by the uh, by the tool chest, which I mean, it's just it's straight. It's like out of an old Mickey Mouse cartoon, the violence, which is still absolutely hilarious, mind you, but uh, but just out of control at all points. I don't know. I don't know if it's hilarious. Like all I can think of when I see these large objects falling from like the fourth story and hitting someone in the head is what a real realistic depiction of it would look like with like brain matter spattering everywhere. And I think that's a big reason why it's not nearly as good as the first. The, the traps are also not as complicated. To be fair, Kevin is really improvising. He does not have the home field advantage. All he has is some names written in a little black book. Shows you the importance of kind of keeping physical records and the analog system will be there uh, if the grid ever goes down. So, so there's no surprise about who's number one on your list, but this is an honor for this gentleman that he was not bestowed in the first iteration of this podcast looking at Home Alone. So why does Kevin reach Apex Mountain here? Well, I mean... He it's a lifetime achievement award for Kevin McAllister to be up at number one. Uh, mm -hmm. He again, he again carries this movie. Um, you know, he's acting alongside all these uh, hilarious and menacing adults. He's pulling it off at all points in time, no matter how, what you think of the uh, older people who are either trying to help him bond with him or kill him. The, just his reaction is he's my parents are in Florida and I'm in New York, which I think which at the beginning of the podcast is something you wish that you could uh, relive. You know, my family is in Florida yeah. and I'm in New York. So as you go for your walk through Central Park, your your wife is trying to find you, um, try and get back to you and find you in front of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Uh, Kevin has a lot of great lines in this. When he's getting the ice cream, he's getting the uh, mega sundae, and the guy's like, do you want two scoops? And he says, uh, two, make it three. I'm not driving. This is something that yeah. I quoted as a child. Um, I once did that at a Red Lobster, said, uh, I'm not driving. Uh, this was me as like 11 or 12 years old, thinking it was the height of comedy, because it was really. Uh, Kevin just is living his best life. Um, having so much fun and then just pretty much trying to kill, till, kill two guys. Yeah. Kevin has to do a lot more in this one than he does in the first. He has to not only escape the wet bandits, he must also outsmart and outguile, which what I have to assume is highly trained hotel staff. You do not get to work at the plaza. If you're just bad at your job, like it's not a, there's not a days in or Radisson to the plaza pipeline. Like that's a high profile, highly sought after job. He must stay at the hotel, even while others are trying to actively evict him from it. He has to use his brains he has to use the latest technology <laughs> is in a way of, of at the forefront of a lot of the editing that we see out there. Like you think that this guy couldn't make some hilarious mashups and dubs and lip readings. And like, I think that Kevin McAllister uh, and another timeline is one of our top content creators. Maybe he works for the ringer. Uh, I would love to see what he's able to do with uh, you know, sports and pop culture He's just brilliant. Um, he goes on the move. He 
gets in a cab. Like there's just so much that he's doing here where in the first one, like he's bunkered down at home. He has that home field advantage. He shows his versatile versatility getting out there. And if you can do it in New York, you can do it anywhere. Yeah. Kevin is just, he's, he's incredible in this. Uh, He, the way he, gets into the hotel just by using the talk boy uh perfectly predicting what the receptionist is going to say when booking the hotel room credit card you got it uh, um and i I'd also like i think this is a good time to uh mention that this is uh kevin at the beginning was basically watching the uh the chunky game show from uh from i think i think you should leave uh it's but it's called Celebrity Ding Dang Dong, which sounds like an incredible game show. Um, I just, let's see, what else did Kevin do? He uh, he he has to check in. He has to use the credit card, which he has never used before. Um, he does the, now it's also a good time to mention the Angels with Even Dirtier Souls which we we didn't mention angels with dirty souls in the uh first podcast uh it's just another super memorable and quotable uh part of this movie uh the merry christmas you filthy animal um and a happy new year and the way that he just so perfectly uses that scene which was obviously made for the movie uh when the hotel staff shows up and just Makes them think there's someone with a Tommy gun in the hotel room, which seems a little uh, a little unrealistic. But, you know, that's that's why this movie has stepped up and become uh, it's a lot more cartoonish. But I a lot of the laughs still landed throughout the film for me. So I am I am happy to continue watching this every year until I die. Yeah. Um <laughs> What'd you say? Uh, yeah, that, that game show, I would have gone for a full episode of that. Okay. The only thing left to do is to give this a score. I think it's a little less Christmassy than the first one, or, or it's just done worse. I'll give it a nine out of 12 days of Christmas. And in terms of a movie, I think this is only a three star out of four for me. It's pretty good. It's everything you want and kind of like a dumb movie. And maybe if home alone had it existed, it could be three and a half for me, but it's, it's a pretty significant step down. Although I do enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's one of those movies where I've, I've seen it so many times. I've been watching this movie for 30 years. I, I, it's a perfect movie to me. Um, I mean, I obviously know it's not a perfect movie. Uh, it's the violence is not set in any sort of uh, any sort of real real world. Uh, also, Uncle Rob's home going through the renovation. Uh, what the fuck happened to Uncle Rob's home that they? I mean, they're not replacing the floors. There's a hole in the floor. This is not a home that someone just moved out of to go to uh, Europe to celebrate Christmas. Uncle Rob, there should we need an Uncle Rob uh, prequel series to find out what happened to that house because I feel like uh, Harry and Marv might not have been the first people to uh, die there. But anyway, Home Alone Two, Lost in New York, uh, classic film. Uh, yeah, as as a movie, I'll give it three and a half stars uh, for Christmas. Probably, yeah, nine or ten. I mean, they they hit the Rockefeller Center tree. There are lights everywhere. They're going. He goes shopping uh, at a toy store. Um, I mean, it's still Christmassy. Um, the only reason it's not super Christmassy is because of Kevin's crappy parents who want to celebrate Christmas in rainy Florida. And so, so those are my ratings. And before I go, before we go, there's one last thing we have to discuss, uh, and. That is the score, the soundtrack of this movie. John Williams absolutely destroyed, just dominated these soundtracks. Uh, the music from Home Alone and Home Alone 2 are so distinct and beautiful. They're, um, they, they're both uh, Christmassy and suspenseful all at once. Um, 
like the music from the, these two movies is just so perfect. You can't hear like any of it and not actually immediately be transported to the Home Alone universe. And I just, I I feel like John Williams finally needs his due from a uh, podcast with dozens of listeners so that he can know how good he is at his job. And now while I wait for you, I will look to see if John Williams is still alive. He's 90. 90 years old. What do you think the last thing he did was? I mean, something with Star Wars, right? Andor, something stupid like that? Um, I mean, he did the Harry Potter music. I mean, Chris Columbus just did a great job with both these movies. John Hughes. I mean... Yeah, I I mean you know Jaws the theme from Star Wars. Come on, who is this guy? Look, I mean you could say like there's a lot to be said. Like I mean these are profoundly silly and trivial movies, uh, but you do have people who are at the top of their craft. Like who is better at like creating a comfortable vibe uh, than John Hughes? Uh, Very few. And then you get the best, one of the best. I mean Hans Zimmer is up there in terms of music, but. John Williams shows his range. My wife actually just mentioned this last night where it's like she couldn't believe it was the same person who did all these iconic themes was able to do Home Alone as well. So it's like you get the very best at their game. And you think about if this movie, the last thing I'll say about a bit about this movie is you think about if these were made today, how crappy they would be. It'd be jarring. They'd be startlingly stupid. They would not be any good. They would just be rushed out to like the nearest streamer. They would be so forgettable. I think it's kind of amazing. And we're so fortunate that like there was a ramp for movies like this to be made back then because they became classics. And now I just wonder if we're ever going to see anything like this that just is this family-friendly, all-ages phenomenon that stands the test of time for 30 years. I hope so. If there's a podcast, we'll be back doing it uh, in 2053. Uh, And by then, I expect social audio is going to have taken over the entire world. Yes. uh, The Talkboy Live social audio app will be incredible. Uh, And just just a note, John Williams, uh, let's see. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, upcoming score, and The Fableman, Steven Spielberg. So this man is still just, at 90 years old, just out there grinding. Absolute grind set on John Williams. Uh, So thank you for all the joy that you've brought us throughout our lives and from before. Uh, So this has been the Home Alone 2 podcast. Uh, For Kyle Coster, I'm Steven Douglas uh, from TheLead.com. We will see you next time. Happy holidays.